Kids, did you notice that when you uh, were, when we were giving our offering, there was a picture there of, of um, uh, prison bars, and then you have your the hands like this. There's a prisoner inside, and uh, all of a sudden these memories came flooding over me of when I was five years old, and um, my family was part of a church that had a ministry to prisoners, and we had to drive about an hour away to the uh, to, to a major city in the state of South Dakota. And being that my father was a music professor, he said, all you kids, we're going we're gonna to minister to those prisoners, and the church would hold services there. He says, you're all going to participate in some way, and we're all taking some kind of music. And I was in the beginning stages of playing piano. And uh, so I had to pray, play this uh, little piece um, called uh, Sweet Hour of Prayer. I don't know if you've ever heard that song. It's a really simple hymn. So at the point of the service, it was time for little Phil to come up. I was probably, yeah, I think it was like five. I started playing my song, and I was so nervous. And then I started to cry, and then I stopped. And then I ran to, I think it was my dad, and just sat down. And then 300 prisoners rose to their feet and gave a standing ovation. It was a beautiful moment. I wouldn't want to repeat it. But it was, uh, I always, whenever I, whenever I see stuff like that, all these, these memories flood. So kids, maybe God will use you in some way to, to, to minister to uh, people who, who are in need. Now, speaking about people who are in need, I want to draw your attention. I don't know. Yeah, very good. Um, Isaiah 49 is a passage that I want to read first, and then I want to draw our attention to Isaiah 45, verse 22, just one verse. And you know, this Christmas season, what we're going to do, leading up to our lessons and carol service on Christmas Eve, for the next couple of weeks, I want to focus on passages that reveal to us um, to whom God sent his son, or for whom God sent his son, Jesus Christ. We know that he sent his son for us, for his people, that we may receive the forgiveness of our sins and be reconciled to God. Secondly, we know that God has sent his son into the world to, as the Bible says, restore all things, including the physical creation, and also to restore in the, a beginning kind of way social structures that we find in the world around us. Um, Jesus was truly a person of reformation in that way. And finally, we have to remember that Jesus came into the world for the sake of the world, for the sake of the nations, so that, is a, so that they might they might be drawn to the light. And it's that emphasis, God's grace through Jesus to the nations, that I want us to focus on here um, this, uh, this morning. So Isaiah 49, we read this. Listen to me, O coastlands. The Lord doesn't say, listen to me, O my people. No, the coastlands is part of the nations. And give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I, I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him 
and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. Now, this final verse, he says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So that when Jesus came into this world, the purpose of Jesus was to reconstitute and renew his people that had fallen away from him. And Jesus came for his people for this, for this precious remnant of his, not only so that they could be reconciled to God and live for him, but so that in living faithfully before God, they would also then live faithfully before the world and be a light to the nations. We clearly see that in the passage that we just read and through other places in the Bible. And now I want to draw your attention to Isaiah 45, verse 22. First of all, we see in the passage that we read from Isaiah 45 that indeed Jesus and Jesus' people would be a light to the nations. And now what we find is a command of God to the nations themselves. And what does he say? Turn to me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved, for I am God, and there is no other. God speaks to the nations. He speaks to Abbotsford, not just us, but he speaks to Abbotsford. And he says, turn to me. I like how an older translation of the Bible puts it, called the King James Version, also known as the Authorized Version. It doesn't say, turn to me, all the ends of the earth, but simply, look to me. Look to me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. A few years ago, in... Uh, the city of Phoenix, where I was pastoring, I, an associate pastor, went to the campus of the largest university in the U.S., Arizona State University. And we went there with the express purpose of interviewing students on campus, asking them this one fundamental question, thus bearing witness to Christ to them, because it's a very secular campus. Here's a simple question. In a broken world, and I would state to them, you don't have to be a Christian to know that the world is not the way that it's supposed to be. In a broken world, where do you find ultimate meaning and purpose and rest in life? Where do you find that? Well, as you can imagine, we received a number of answers, which I'm not, for the sake of time, going to go through all the answers with you. But that very question I want to pose to every one of us here this morning. As you gather here this morning, where do you find ultimate meaning, purpose, fulfillment, and rest in your life. I want, you to, I want you to deal with that in your heart. And then I want you to consider the answer of our text, which is, again, turn or, and the Lord is addressing all of us here directly this morning, turn or look to me all the ends of the earth, yes, you too, and be saved. And when you hear that word saved this morning, Try not to think in what we call a minimalist or reductionist way, because oftentimes when we think of being saved, we think of being saved from our sin, receiving forgiveness, and being reconciled to God, and that's at the very center of it. But salvation from the perspective of the Bible is much broader than that. Salvation not only includes the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God, but salvation includes coming to a point of personal shalom, of peace, and fulfillment, and meaning, and joy. 
God says, turn to me for that. Look to me for that. Okay? Now, as we take a look at the passage here, we find ourselves in one of the most beautiful and extensive books in uh, all of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. Isaiah is a book that is oftentimes preached by pastors during what we call the Advent season, those weeks leading up to Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And the book of Isaiah is filled with some of the most extensive and detailed prophecies or predictions of the coming of Jesus in all of the Bible. It's just a beautiful, it's not, it's not only a, a, a book that we can embrace that points us to Jesus, it's just a beautifully written book. But the book of Isaiah also reflects a time in the lives of our ancestors, the people of God, the people of Judah, when they sadly, and you read about this especially in the opening chapters, where they, 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 they in a sense, they, they turned their back on God and, and they didn't fulfill their lives as the people of God. Out of all the nations on the face of the earth, God placed his love and his commitment upon his people. Of all the, the people in the nations of the earth, God elected them, he chose them, and he entered into covenant with them. They, he basically entered into a formal bond of friendship and love with them in Jesus Christ. And this was a calling to reciprocate that love. So just in marriage, as husbands and wives, the husband is to love the wife, the wife is to reciprocate. Hopefully that comes naturally. It should have come naturally for the people of God, our ancestors, but it didn't. They turned their backs on God. And they turned their backs on God to such an extent that they broke covenant, they broke marriage with him to the point where God sends Isaiah to them with this fundamental message. And bear with me because I'm going to use a word that you don't hear very often here. He says, you know what you are? You're a bunch of whores. Now, I don't use the term lightly. It's a biblical word. Listen to these words from Isaiah. How the faithful city of God has become a whore. She who was once full of justice. Righteousness was once lodged in her, but not now. Your princes are rebels and thieves, and your citizens love a bribe. They do not bring justice to the orphans, and they neglect the widows. That is what we call a damning indictment. And God does not pull any punches here. Neither does the prophet Isaiah, who speaks for God. Things did not go well for our ancestors. God sent prophet after prophet to turn them from their way. They would not listen. And so God said, okay, what's going to happen is this. You're going to become disciplined. And what is going to happen, that there's an ascendant nation at the time called the nation of Babylon, and he will come, or they will come, the nation, and they will subjugate you. They will take possession of you. They will invade your city. They will break down your walls, they will break down the temple, and you will be exiled about a thousand miles away to Babylon. And there you will be in captivity for 70 long years. And that's what happened. And so God used the nations around the particular Babylon to bring the people of God into captivity to discipline them, but also what he did is this. In time, he disciplined the nations that he used against the people of God. So we have a, a double-edged sword there against God's people and against the nations. But here's the thing, and we need to understand this very clearly, that this discipline toward God's people was only for a time. And in time, God restored a remnant of his people, and it's for them who Jesus came in the beginning to reconstitute them, to regroup them, and make them what they should have been from the very beginning, a light to the nations. But one final thing, and that is this. 
God also, after disciplining his people and disciplining the nations, not only set out to restore his people, but to restore the nations themselves. Time and time again we see that in the Bible, and time and time again we see that in the book of Isaiah, how God himself says to the nations, I used you, but I am not done with you. I disciplined you, but I am not done with you, and with my hand I will reach out to you. So that we read in our passage, God directly says to the nations, turn to me, look to me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved, for I am God, and there is no other. But that's not an easy thing for us to do, is it? And if you've ever interacted with people in the present culture who would not call them Christians, who do not go to church, it's a very difficult thing to call them to look unto the Lord in order that they might be saved, in order that they might be rescued. Because many of them don't think that they really need to be rescued in the first place. The difficulty really fundamentally in doing what God requires of us and, and what he requires of the nations. The difficulty of just looking to him is very, very, in some ways it's very, very easy, but in some ways it's very, very difficult. Because when you look to God, what that re requires is that you fundamentally have to die to yourself and you have to relinquish autonomy. Kids are probably wondering, what is autonomy? Autonomy is basically self-rule, doing what you want to do. First and foremost, not what God wants you to do, but you want to do. And that very simple point is evidenced in every one of our lives. I dare say this past week, for most of us, in some way, maybe a large way or a small way, and certainly is evidenced in the world. Give it up, the Lord says. Give yourself up to me. There was a man um, who died a couple of years ago. His name was David Pollison. He's a well-known Christian counselor. And before he died, he shared with many people, he said this, and he, he talked about when he was in his early 20s. And he said, when I was in my early 20s, I didn't think I needed to be rescued. I didn't think I needed to be saved. People tell me, you need to be saved. And like, what? Saved from what? Saved from you? I didn't think I needed to be saved. In fact, I didn't want to in my early 20s. I didn't want... I didn't want people to tell me what I had to do. What is that called? That's called autonomy. Is there anyone here this morning who struggles with that human dilemma known as autonomy? If you, if you do... God calls you to relinquish it, give it up, humble yourself, and heed the call to look to the Lord in order to be rescued from that. Because if you don't, I will tell you on the basis of the Bible and also personal experience that it will not end well for you. You bank on that. It may take weeks, it may take months, it may take years, but you're going to grind yourself to a halt, and it's not going to be good for you. But it doesn't have to end that way. The Lord says, turn, look. So when you take a close look at that passage, you, that, that, that text, just that single verse, you really see three things. Number one, you see that this call of God, this sincere summons, really this command to us is, first of all, personal. The Lord says, look to me. 
It's just not a, a general thing. It goes out specifically to each and every one of us. The Lord says, yes, you, and you, and you, and you, you all. Look to me. Secondly, it's universal. Not only is it personal, but it's universal. Listen to the words again. He says, look to me all the ends of the earth and be safe. For I'm God and there is no other. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said, when in reference to the grace of God, God's grace is that wide. It is wide as the ocean and as deep as eternity. And it goes out to the nations. It is personal, it is universal, and it is also exclusive. The Lord says, notice the language again. He says, look to me. Don't look around. Don't look to yourself. He says, get out of yourself and look to me. And I want to suggest to you that in the New Testament, what Jesus does is he takes hold of these words and then he issues this invitation. And he says, come to me, me, no one else. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden with your sin, and I will give you rest. Friends, listen, true fulfillment, true meaning, rest, shalom, peace can only be found in Christ. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This is what we celebrate this Christmas. This is why Jesus came into this world. When we gather for worship this time of year, this week, next Sunday, for our Lessons and Carol service, we are celebrating the coming of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And he is worthy. And he's worthy to embrace. And all we need to do is not only look to him, but we need to come to him. But how do we do that? How do we, how do we actually draw near to him? You know, when you take a look at the text, it's rather interesting. Um, there's something going on in the original language that's, that's quite striking, and that is this. When, when God says, turn to me or look to me, the word look Actually, the root of that word is the, is the Hebrew word for, for face, for the face of God. So when God issues this invitation or this, this command, literally he's saying this. He's saying, face me. Face me. Turn your face to me. Has, has anyone ever talked with you that, that you felt uncomfortable with something that they were bringing to your attention, maybe that you didn't want to hear, and, and you, you, you couldn't face them. You look down. Or you look away. Or sometimes when you have it, I've had this when I was a little kid too, when parents have to confront their kids with something, you know, lovingly but pretty firmly. You know, sometimes you have a kid that looks up and they got tears streaming down their face. Sometimes they can't face the face of the parent. They just kind of look down. They're kind of, kind of ashamed. And the Lord says, don't, don't live with the shame. Don't, don't live with the autonomy. Don't run away. Just turn your face. All you got to do is look at me. And not only look at me, look at my face, but look 
to me. Look to me. Let me give you an illustration of that in the lives of our ancestors. You go back a number of years before the people of God in the book of Isaiah, and what you find is that there was another time when they turned their backs on God. And it was in, it was in a desert, it was in the wilderness. And, and kids, things are going poorly for them, and what happened in the desert, imagine this, I can imagine this better when we were living in Arizona. I can imagine it less here where I don't know if maybe you do have poisonous snakes here. I don't know. But we had a bunch of rattlers and big, big snakes. They run six, seven feet long in the desert. And in the desert, um, as, they were, as they turned their backs on God, they were punished by poisonous snakes that came just out of the sand and, and bit them, poisonous vipers, and a number of them died. But some of the people lived. And God said to the leader of God's people at that point, Moses, he said, Moses, for those who are still living, what I want you to do is I want you to put up a, a pole with a, a, a bronze snake on it, image of a bronze snake. Then all the people have to do is they have to look up at that bronze snake. And if they simply look at that snake, they will live. Many years later, Jesus would draw upon these words, and he would say, just as the bronze serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, we read this in the fourth book of the New Testament, the Gospel of John, just as the bronze snake was lifted up in the wilderness, and the people looked at it, so too the Son of Man, in reference to himself, he says, so too the Son of Man must be lifted up, referring to being lifted up on a cross, and all those who look to him, and all those who believe in him, shall have eternal life. Jesus is saying, as a people, all they had to do is look at that snake in the wilderness. All they need to do is look to me. Isn't that simple? It's, 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 almost, it's almost too simple. And in, in, in reality, it's really too good to be true. How many people in this world, and maybe you're here this morning where you think, either overtly or very subtly, that somehow I have to work myself into God's good graces. Because, Pastor, you don't know my life, you don't know it now, or you don't know what I've done in the past, and there's all this dirt and all these skeletons in the closet, and it's really, really filthy, and it's really, really dirty. And to just say to me, all I need to look, all I need to do is look to Jesus in faith. And I will be saved. I will be rescued from this. And I will be in right standing with God. I mean, really? Doesn't seem too good to be true? And yet it is. The gospel of Christmas. Let me give you one final illustration of this. And then we're going to draw it to a close. And it's based upon an incident in church history. In the life of an individual that I just quoted a little time ago. Charles Spurgeon. And if you are uh, uh, a child here, or if you are a teenager here, I want you to especially look, uh, listen, okay? When he was 15 years old, Charles Spurgeon, who became one of the greatest preachers in the modern era, when he was 15 years old, he admitted that he was not walking with God in any meaningful way. But apparently... Something in him, probably the Spirit of God, prompted him to go to a church service one night 
on a snowy, sleety evening, I believe it was around the year 1850. He was living in London at the time, and he walked away from his home for a few blocks, and he said, I'm going to go to the first church that I see, and he went to a little Methodist church in London. And he went inside that building, and there was just a, hand, just a handful of people. And he went in there, and he sat down in a pew, and he waited for the church service to start. And the people were waiting as well. Five, ten minutes passed. There was no preacher. Because the weather was so bad that evening that the preacher didn't even show up. So what happened, maybe you know the story, but an old shoemaker got up. Now maybe in our circles, I don't know. Maybe an elder would read a sermon, or we just cancel the service for the evening, I don't know. But in Baptist circles, it's like, hey, Whoever's here, get up, start preaching. This old shoemaker got up and he started to preach. And he announced his text. Look to me, all the ends of the earth and be saved, for I'm God and there is no other. And he started to preach. And he preached for about 10 minutes until he ran out of things to say. At that point, he zeroed in on that young Spurgeon, that 15-year-old young man. And he looked at him straight in the eye and said, Young man, you look very miserable. And you will always be very miserable until you obey my text. Young man, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and live. Spurgeon was dumbfounded and heartstruck. And he later on, he said this, I did look to Jesus and he looked at me and we were one forever. I was perfectly at rest in Christ, satisfied with him, and my heart was glad. If there were 50 other saviors, I could not have thought of one of them. I was driven to this one. Any Spurgeons here this morning? Anyone here this morning who is in need, the life-giving spirit of God? Anyone here in need of awakening? and a commitment to the Lord. Anyone here who is walking with the Lord and takes great joy in this season, but who wants even greater joy, oh, may our hearts here this morning be like the heart of that 15-year-old Spurgeon where he realized that it was Jesus and Jesus alone to whom he needed to look. After all, Jesus is God, right? And there is no other. This is the blessing and this is the joy of the Christmas season for us, for the nations of the world, and for the city of Abbotsford. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we draw near to you this morning, and we are grateful for your grace and your invitations that are just sprinkled throughout the Bible. Father, we realize that in each and every one of us is that times Really, Lord, a heart of darkness, a darkness that needs to be dispelled by the light of the gospel, by the light of Christ, by the light of truth. Father, we pray, work that light in our lives, we pray, and invigorate us, O oh God, this season, to express the kind of joy that we need to during this season, O oh God, for our benefit, for our blessing, and O oh God, above all, for your blessing as a God who, as the great Spurgeon put it, whose grace is as deep as the ocean and as wide as eternity. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.